You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. We're in Judges 13, so if you guys have a Bible, uh, grab it, go open Judges 13. If you don't, there's one in the seat in front of you, you and grab that one. I, just, I do want to thank you guys for, for last Sunday. Man, so many uh, encouraging things. We had a, probably an extra 800, 900 folks in this building. You felt that if you came to 930. Um, we were standing room only in both rooms. Uh, but a lot of people prayed, a lot of people invited, a lot of people came. And we'll just trust that God's going to do uh, what he's going to do with that. The gospel was preached. Just trust that, that God is moving. And so but thankful for you guys for giving up seats and serving behind the scenes and being cheerful and joyful. Uh, it was, it was, it's always an exciting Sunday for us. So this is a big time of year for, for, uh, for fans of the superhero uh, universe, right? I will not spoil the movie for you. Uh, I promise. I won't tell you how the Terminator got into a phone booth and came back in a DeLorean, all right? I won't tell you anything about how that happened in the movie, right? But we, we love as a culture and the world, um, we, we love the idea of superheroes. I even talked to my dad last night, and you know, he didn't have movies back when he was born in the 1860s, but... They, they did have comic books and how he just read comic books and loved the superheroes. It's something about someone who can do something extraordinary, right? That, that it's attractive to us. And we're gonna come to a guy today in the scriptures. He's as close, I guess, to a superhero uh, that you can get uh, in the scripture. And, and I think that's why we're fascinated with this guy um, because he is so strong. Uh, when, and we, when we started this book, when we... When we started talking about Ehud and Othniel and, and Barak and Deborah, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, those names probably didn't mean much to you. Some of you probably heard a sermon here or there or talk about Gideon at one point. Maybe somebody's shining a flashlight, blowing a trumpet. Probably heard that. But when you talk about Samson, everybody knows a little bit about Samson, right? Uh, there's been poetry written. There's been movies made. Um, he is, there's something about him, this, this Superman with a mullet, guy that, that we are attracted to, that we're fascinated by. If we ask most people, which one of the judges would you rather be? I mean, most people are going to say, I don't want to be Samson. Besides that whole like poke his eyes out with the poker thing, uh, Samson, he's my guy. I'm going to be like Samson, right? Um, he stands out. He is unique compared to all the rest of the judges. Not only does he have, mo- he has the most press. He gets four chapters, Four chapters is written about this guy. But unlike a Gideon and a Barak who, who, who had confidence issues, this guy's got no confidence issues. Unlike Ehud who has a handicap, this guy's got no handicap. Unlike Jephthah who's got major dysfunctional family, this guy's got maybe two of the best parents in the Bible except for maybe Mary and Joseph, right? Uh, he, he stands out. He never blows a trumpet to gather the people of Israel. He is a one-man band. He is a one-man wrecking crew. He, he faces, goes to a thousand Philistines, just give me that jawbone. I'll take it, right? He, he's, he just goes on on his own. Uh, lions, tigers, bears, oh my, no, no problem. I'll take out that lion, right? Um, and so for him, we've seen with the other judges, often the theme is that when they are weak, that makes him strong. With Samson, it's because his strength, he becomes super weak, right? And so uh, he epitomizes this book that we've been studying so well. We've, we've entitled it, Everyone Needs a King. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And so uh, he epitomizes this idea that everybody needs a king. And he actually is a, a picture and a prototype of someone and something else, right? This man, Samson. So Samson, his, his rule was prophesied. There's actually a prophecy in, in the book of Genesis that says Dan will judge his people. Samson's a Danite. He's from the tribe of Dan. He was supernaturally born. His mama's too old to have kids, but she has a kid. She, he is set apart from his mother's womb. He's going to be given this, this thing called a Nazarite vow. We'll look at that in a little bit. He's, his holiness, his separateness is the source of his strength. And when the spirit comes on this dude, nothing can stand in his way. He is meant to be a blessing to his people. His name, Samson, comes from the word that means to be sun-like, S-U-N. It's a new day in Israel, and he is supposed to be the bright light but what happens is he ends up bound and humiliated and hated and mocked by the Gentiles who mock him and his God. And it's a picture, it's a picture of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is prophesied. In you, Abraham, I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. The nation was supernaturally born. Sarah was way too old to have kids, 90 years old. Right? They were called to be set apart. They were a set apart people. Israel was, was a covenant people. They even had a mark of their covenant of circumcision. Right? They were supposed to be different and distinct and holy. God dwelt in their midst. His spirit was in their midst. They had a temple, a tabernacle. They were meant to be a blessing, a light to all the world that they could see this people is different. This is, this is God's people. Yet they end up blinded, enslaved, and scorned by the Gentiles just like Samson, right? See the picture? And it leads us to the theme of our book. Everyone needs a king. That's why we need a better king. We need a better judge because there is another one who was prophesied and who was born supernaturally, who was set apart and holy. The spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was bound and handed over to the Gentiles. The only difference is this one was victorious. He is our better king, and that's what the point of the entire book is. That's what the point of the Bible is, right? It's, this is the beauty of your Bibles. It is one story with a lot of little things in there kind of going this way, but it's all one big narrative, and it all speaks of one thing. This is why Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think you find life in them, but these speak of me. The scripture is about who Christ is and what he has done. And Samson is a prototype, just like Israel was a prototype. But we need a better king, and that's why we have a savior in Jesus. And so what we're going to do today, we're just going to crack the door on this old boy and get his introduction. This is like an intro sermon. Um, if you've read ahead, we're in Judges chapter 13. And this is basically, you're not even going to see Samson until the end of the chapter. right? This is, how, this is his background. And what it's going to show you is this guy had every advantage He's got the gifts, he's got the parents, he's set up for success. But if you know the story, you're gonna, you know how it ends. He never meets his potential, right? And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit today and see if we can find ourselves in this very interesting and strange narrative. This is probably the least easy passage to preach in this, in this text because it's like, what does that have to do with me? And so I'm gonna try to find something. So we'll see if we can get there. Uh, so let's jump in in verse one. The people of Israel did again what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And 
And so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Again, shocker. Right? It's only the seventh time around. And so God sells them into the hands of their, really their nemesis. Right? This is the nemesis you see in the Old Testament of most. The Philistines. Right? The Philistines. Uh, this, this group of people, they're not actually Canaanites. They came from across the sea. They're kind of like Vikings. They're kind of like pirates. They came from across the sea. They land on the coast of Israel. They kind of plant themselves in five cities. Uh, and often you think of the Philistines, you think of this kind of like this dumb, big, barbaric people. They were barbaric, but they were not dumb. They were the first people to learn how to smelt iron. So they had iron weapons when no one else did. So they were dominant. But we've also, archaeologists have actually found some of these Philistine structures where they were very advanced in certain ways and in their architecture and their art, but they were very wicked. They were known for mutilation and burning and, and harshness towards their enemies. They were known for their big parties. They made Georgia Southern look like a, like a preschool, right? A Georgia Southern frat party. Um, and they loved, apparently, they loved, this is the only redeeming thing about them, they loved pork. They loved barbecue and bacon, which I can't uh, blame them for that. That's a good thing. So that's affirming to the Philistines. If you're a Philistine, well done, all right? But they become a thorn in the side of Israel for many, many years. In fact, you know, David's got to deal with these people uh, a, couple, a couple hundred years later, right? And, and they are birth, they are the birthplace of a giant. You know him, he's a giant. His name is Clint, I mean Goliath. <laughs> Sorry, Bubba. Uh, so this is the people that are gonna be around for a long time. They're gonna be around until the days of Nebuchadnezzar, which is several hundred years later. But that's who God sells them in for 40 years. Think about that. I just had a birthday last week, 45 that's my entire life almost enslaved. It's a long time. It's a long, I mean, I'm, I'm old now. But you think about that. 40 years. But see, their, 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 their slavery, their enslavement seemed to be a little bit different than, the, than those of the past. They seemed to be more, even though they were a harsh people, they wanted to assimilate with the, with the Israelites. And so if you needed a, a, a backhoe, right, you needed a, a rake, since they're the ones that have the metal, what do you do? You gotta go down to Gath. You gotta go down to, to one of these cities and they'll sell you a rake, right? And they'll even give you their daughters in marriage. And they were slowly assimilating into the life, even though they were dominant, they were, they were assimilating into the life of the Israelite. And so it was kind of death by compromise, which is why in this verse, you see no cry for help. The cycle that we've seen has been the Israelite sin and then there's servitude and then there's some kind of repentance. There's a sorrow. They cry out to God, help us. And then God sends a savior. There's no sorrow in this text. There's no repentance. They're just content. They're content to live in the, the slavery of the Philistines. In fact, later, we're gonna see in a couple weeks, uh, Samson's mixing it up with the Philistines and the Jewish people come to him and say, what are you doing? Don't you know the Philistines are our bosses? They're so used to just being dominated. They're just like... What you, he's trying to deliver them, and, and they're like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you rocking the boat? That, that's, that's what's going on here, right? They're becoming like the Philistines. They're content. And so there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. Again, Dan uh, shall judge his people is what Genesis say, right? And his wife was barren, and she had no kids. And we've seen the idea of barrenness in the Bible was, was a desperate situation. Kids were your 401K. Right? Who's going to take good care of you when you get older? Your kids are. 
right? And so uh, to have no kids was to have no one to take care of the land and no one to perpetuate your name. And so it was a desperate situation, but she cannot have kids. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Uh, And have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So the angel of the Lord, we've seen him before. This is this is God himself shows up. We saw him with Gideon. We've seen him in other places. God shows up and tells this woman, you haven't had a kid. You are going to have a kid. Verse four, he gives instructions. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. He gives her these, these specific dietary instructions. And it's not because he's like, okay, you need to take care of yourself. You're pregnant now. Take your vitamins, right? Do your yoga. That's not the heart of it, Right? He, she, he tells later, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come his head, on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. All right, and so what you have here, this is very unique to them. Um, the, the, the word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word natsir, which means to be separated, to be consecrated. Okay, so in Israel, the only people who could kind of work at the tabernacle, the temple, were the Levites from the tribe of Levi. And then in that tribe, you had the, the line of Aaron, who could be the high priest, right? But outside that, you, you didn't kind of have to do the, quote, ministry. But if you were kind of the Eagle Scout Israelite, you wanted to go above and beyond, you could take what is called a Nazarite vow, according to number six. You could be a man and do it. You could be a woman and do it. And what you did was you were separating yourself for a certain amount of time. Six months, one year, three years, whatever. You designated the time for the next two years. I am separating myself to serve God wholeheartedly, no distractions. And while you took that vow, you weren't allowed to have anything from the fruit of the vine. So no Pinot Grigio, no IPOs, no Welch's grape juice, no raisin bran, no nothing, right? You weren't allowed to eat anything because the idea was you were supposed to be controlled by God himself, right? That was the one point. You weren't allowed to cut your hair. No bangs, no you know, color, no, uh, no super cuts, right? And this was a outward sign to everybody out there. You, this guy looks like a ZZ Top guitarist. He he's, has a Nazarite vow. ZZ Top is for the 70s and 80s folks in the house, right? No one else knows about that, right? But so you got long hair. People would say, okay, this guy's a Nazarite, so I'm not supposed to tempt him. I'm supposed to encourage him. There's an accountability factor here. It was an outside marker. This guy is a, is a Nazarite. And then the final thing was you weren't allowed to touch anything dead. So you can't go hunting. You can't go to any, any funerals, right? Because you're supposed to be ceremonially clean and used for God. And so at the end of this vow, when your two years is up, when your six months is up, whatever time frame you set, you shave your head, you cut all your hair off, and you burn it, and you make an offering, Right, And that was the conclusion of your vow. Anybody could do it. But three people in the Bible are called to be Nazarites from the womb. Samson's the first. Then you have a guy a couple, a couple years later, his name is Samuel. And he's a Nazarite. And you got to go a couple hundred more years to a guy named Johnny B. Johnny the Baptist. Right? Not Johnny the Presbyterian, Johnny the Baptist. He is a Nazarite from the womb. Only three guys in all the scripture are Nazarites from the womb. And so this is the instructions, and he will begin to save. He's not going to finish, but he's going to begin to save Israel from the Philistines, verse 6. And so the woman came and told her husband. She recaps it. A man of God came to me. She doesn't know who he is. She just calls him a man of God. His appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. 
But he said, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then no drink, nor wine, nor strong drink, or eat nothing unclean. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Notice, by the way, why does she start when he's in the womb? Because when you're in the womb, you are a baby. You are alive. It's not at birth. It's at conception. Just another just subtle uh, idea there that, birth, that, that, that those who are pregnant, that conception is the beginning of life. Right? But so she recaps to her husband. Here's what I love about that, just a side observation. The angel of God comes to the woman. Just another affirmation in Scripture that God values the voice of women. And God speaks to women. And husbands, we would be wise to say, what is God saying to you? Right? He doesn't go to Manoah. We don't even know this girl's name. She's just the wife of Manoah. She's Mrs. Manoah, right? But God speaks to Mrs. Manoah, not just once, twice. And what I also love is Manoah trusts his wife. He isn't like, you've been hitting the Chardonnay, uh, old girl. You've been hitting the hoots, and you're going to be pregnant. You're a little old for that, ain't you? We've tried that before. He believes her, even though it sounds crazy. Which just is another, just shows us these are good people living in a bad time. These are good parents. They're just solid parents. They love God. They have a good relationship, good enough that he trusts his wife. There's a lot of not good parents out there. All you got to do is be involved in any prom stuff. And you can see who the good parents are and the bad parents are. I'm just telling you, just walk that walk. Some of you will get there, but I'm just telling you, I can identify it now. Um, But these are good folks. Verse 8. And so Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. What does he do? He prays. We're gonna be parents and there's no doubt he's, he trusts. He prays. God, let him teach us what we're, we're, we're to do. He, what is he saying? He's saying, God, help. I'm an old man. I'm gonna have a kid. Help. This is good parenting. God, Help. I got teenagers, help. It's, it's good parenting right here, right? He prays, he asks God for help. And in God's grace, he listens. He listens to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again, again. But this time he still goes, he goes to his wife, Mrs. Manoah. She's sitting in the field doing her quiet time or something. But Noah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, said, behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and he went after his wife and he came to the man and said, are you the man who spoke to this woman? He even calls her this woman. Don't do that. Call her name. This is, you know, my wife. Did you talk to my wife? Did you talk to this woman? And he said, I am. Which I think is interesting because anytime you see I am in the scripture and it's God saying it, I think there's significance, right? But he says, I am, I'm the guy. And Manoah said, when your words come true, Again, assumption of truth. I believe you. What is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? He's asking what all parents ask. What, what, do you, what should this kid, what is he gonna do? What, where should I send him to school? What's his major gonna be? What's his job gonna be? Help me so I can get him ready. What's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? And I love God's answer. He says, it doesn't matter. This is basically what he says. The angel of the Lord said, all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her. See, he, God is not interested in what Samson's going to do, but God is interested in Sam, what Samson is going to be. He says, I don't care what he's going to do, but I want him to be holy. I want him to be holy. I want him to be set apart. And again, 
To me, that's a great reminder. All of us as parents, man, I mean, I got two, one going off to college in the fall, one next year trying to find all this. And we're praying and asking God, what do you want them to do? What a major, all these things. And there's nothing wrong with that. You got tests, you got tutoring, you got grades, you got all these things. Nothing wrong with being diligent there. But in the end, what, what does it matter if your kid gets a full ride to the University of Georgia just to lose the SEC championship? No, gets to go play football for the University of Georgia gets a 4.0, becomes the president of X, Y, and Z. He's super successful, right? Mary is a super successful lady. What does it matter if he does all that, all your dreams, but yet he is unkind, disrespectful, entitled, rebellious? He's a cotton-headed nitty mongans. So we ought to be praying, not, we pray, yeah, God lead them, God direct them, but in the end, praying that they're kind, respectful, and gentle, they don't make fun of people, help them find their gifts, help them find their niche, help them market themselves, but in the end, it's not what they do, except they got to take care of you when you get old, but it's who they are, and so that's the angel the Lord says, I want them to be Holy. That should be our prayer. That's good parenting. He continues. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. They still don't know who they're talking to. Let me feed you. Let me give you our best. And the angel of the Lord said Manoah to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. What am I gonna do with food? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't, I don't need your goat. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. And again, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Right? He doesn't know it. And so finally Manoah is like, what is your name that when your words come true, we may honor you? And here's the response. This is good. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Wonderful. Right? So what kind of guy shows up, won't eat a goat, but he just wants an act of worship? God. And then when you ask his name, he says, you don't need to know my name. It is wonderful. And the Hebrew word here is Pele, not the soccer player from Brazil, right? Pele. And it's, it's a word that's loaded. It basically means incomprehensible, transcendent, beyond what you can grasp, right? It's basically his way of saying, you can't handle the truth. That's what he's saying, right? And so Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Pele, wonderful, incomprehensible, transcendent, you can't handle the truth, right? In Psalm 139, that psalm that talks about how God knows our inner thoughts and he knows everything about us and he knows what we're thinking, when we're thinking it. He knows all these things. He sees us even when we hide. And then the psalmist says, such knowledge is to Pele. It's, it's beyond what I can grasp. I can't handle the truth. When, when God tells Sarah, She's going to have a baby, and, and she doesn't believe she lasts. He says, is anything too Pele, anything too, too broad, too big, too incomprehensible for God? That's the idea, right? So he says, why do you ask? Just, just worship. Because what he could have said, he could have said his name. He could have said, well, okay, I am the second person of a triune God, one essence, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I will one day leave heaven, take on humanity, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die as, as an atonement for sin, and then rise again on the third day. And then I'll one day ascend from the Father again and come to be uh, with my people forever and ever. He could have said that, but he's not gonna get that. 
So he just says, just worship. You can't handle the truth, right? You can't, you can't handle this right now, right? And so what does he do? They worship. And it says, Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and he offered it to the rock of the Lord. I don't like the ending of the ESV, the way it reads here. It's very difficult in the Hebrew. I think the NIV actually is better here, which is, you will rarely hear me say that, just so you know. It's like me saying, I'm happy the Braves won, even though they didn't. I'd never say that. I never say the NIV is better here, but I actually think it is. It says, the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. What amazing thing. When the flame went up towards heaven from the altar and the angel of the Lord went up into the flame, right? All right, so if you got a guy who shows up and claims to be God and won't eat, but he'll offer a sacrifice, and then when you offer that sacrifice, he floats up into the flame, that is moderately alarming to you. <laughs> and so he goes up, they go down immediately on their face, and they worship. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, and Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, we are gonna die. For we have seen God. But his wife said to him, oh, honey. She said that. He didn't write it down, but she said that. Oh, honey. If the Lord had meant, she's the smart one here. Let me just tell you, she's the intelligent one. Uh, if the Lord meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or announced to us such things as these. And he said, that makes sense. <laughs> You're probably right. That's not in there, but he said it. All right, and then verse 24, jump forward nine months. The woman bore a son. She came to name, named him Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him at Manahan Dan between Zorah and whatever that other place is. All right, and you're set up, and you're thinking, I mean, this boy is gonna be something else. Great parents. Super gifted by God. He's blessed. The Lord literally is blessing this kid. The spirit of the Lord is already upon this guy. He's prophesied. He's got everything going for him. He has been designed for greatness. But what we're gonna see is he is poised to be destroyed at the same time. And I think this is where... Um, I think we can find ourselves in the story just a little bit. Because let's be honest, that's not your birth story. If your mama told you that's your birth story, your mama's a liar. Okay? It's not your birth story. Right? Uh, and, and, but how do, we, how do we relate to this? I, I, if, as we kind of move forward, and this really just sets up the next three chapters of Samson's life and his failures. But what you're going to see is that Samson fails to understand what God has called him to. He fails to understand what his calling really is. And I think for us, that's where we can relate. I think I can find myself in that story. That Samson misses what God is really doing and what he's really calling to. And because he does, he misses out. And let me, let me give you two ways Samson misses it. And then we'll just worship. And I want you to think about these and identify yourself in these. Because these are going to set yourself up for the next couple weeks. As we look at Delilah, we look at jawbones, we look at weddings, we look at all this stuff, right? Um, so we look at gouging out of eyes. So here's the first thing I think that, that Samson missed and I don't want us to miss. That, that being set apart is a positive thing. Being separate, we see separate as negative. But Samson misses the big E and the I chart. Now, he gets all the rules. He gets the code of the Nazarite. All right, no supercuts, no raisin bran, no hunting. 
Got it. But he misses the point of it. He's got the rules. He doesn't get the relationship piece. He, is, he sees it as, as separate from rather than separate to. And that is a huge difference, right? And I think, I think we do that as Christians all the time. So God tells us, 1 Peter, all right? Uh, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior. For it is written, you shall be holy. Why? I am holy. So we hear that, we're like, yes, we need to be holy. And as soon as we say we need to be holy, what do we do? Holiness becomes a bunch of things we don't do. Don't, 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 no, 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 no. That's what holiness is. A bunch of negative commands. Now, I'm not saying there's not things in the Bible that aren't, God says, don't do that. This is not gonna be helpful for you because I'm your, I'm your father and I want you, I don't want, that's dangerous. But there's far more positive things that God tells us to do than those which he says don't do. And if you need an example, just look at the Garden of Eden. God creates. He says, you can do whatever you want. Run around naked all day long. I don't care. The only thing you can't do is eat that tree. Why? Because you can't handle that tree. That tree will t- teach you about good and evil. You can't handle that. I don't want you to know that. So there's one rule, one negative. Do anything you want. Swim across the ocean. Jump out of a tree. I don't care. Just don't do that. And Satan takes that one little negative and he twists it and here we are, right? Everything was positive. This one thing was not good for you, so I'm trying to keep you from it. And that's what we do, right? That's what we do. So we take God's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be generous, because God loves a cheerful giver, and you can't outgive me. And, and, and you can't, if you store up treasure in heaven, it's going to be unbelievable. And we take that positive thing and we say, I've got to give. Time to write the church check. Got to do this. God says, I want you to gather with my people during the week, on weekend, on Sunday. I want you to encourage one another. I want you to stir one another up. I want you to love one another. I want you to bring strength to each other. I want you to do that. What do we make it? Got to go to church. I wake up, can't go play golf. Sorry, I can't go fishing. I gotta go to church, right? We take God's good commands. God says, I want you to, to use your mouth to build people up and to sing praises to me and to bless and to encourage and do all these things. And it, we make it, I can't, I can't, can't say anything anymore. I can't do anything. I can't criticize that person because I'm a Christian, right? Make it all, we make everything good negative. And it becomes don't, 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 don't. And it, when we see our, our calling as a negative calling, oh, we gotta be separate. We gotta, if we see it, a couple different things are gonna happen to us. Number one, we are gonna be the type of people who try to get as close to the line as possible without going over, right? It's like the kid when you say, don't open the cabinet, and he's all like, <laughs> pretending he's washing the cabinet. Don't touch, this, don't touch the, 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 the hot stove, how, what does he do? He gets as close as he can to, to not touch it, so I'm not breaking the rule, but I'm dag, I'm close. And all that is is legalism. And when you see your calling as negative, what you're gonna do is you're gonna end up saying, I'm a Christian, I'm holy, but you're just gonna be sitting over the, over the fence longing to eat some grapes, get your hair cut, and go hunting. I wish I could go hunting. I wish I could have some brazen brand tomorrow. And we're just gonna be, there's no joy there. There's no joy in legalism. There's no joy in separated from rather than separated to. And Samson, y'all, he does not have any joy. This is a grumpy dude. He is an angry man. His whole life he's angry. He's just angry, angry, angry. Legalism never leads to joy. 
Never does. That's, that'll, that'll be where we go if that's what we see ourselves. It also leads to pride because I keep the rules that I've created, by the way. I've made my code of holiness. My code of holiness is X, Y, and Z. And, and if you don't follow my code of holiness, then you're not as holy as I am, by the way. Right? Because this is what God, God, God's, God's love is for really for these people. Yeah, God loves the whole world, but he especially loves me because I'm special. Because I do these things. And it's always around those convictionaries, areas, those gray areas like uh, he'll have a glass of wine or he'll, he'll, his kids will play sports or the type of schooling that you, that you choose to do, right? Um, all those things. He goes to movies, he doesn't. And, and, and just because you do or don't do something does not make you more or less spiritual. But there will be pride and arrogance because I keep the rules and they do not. But your spirituality is not merely determined by what you don't do. If, if it was all based on what we don't do, then the most spiritual thing we could do was be in, in paralysis. I'm holy. Our God is holy, and he's not just sitting there. I'm not moving. I don't do anything. Jesus, as he lived on the earth, did a ton of things. He laughed. He fished. He flipped over tables. He had long conversations. He took naps. He worked. He ate. He prayed. He... he he did all these things and he was holy. So doing nothing is not holiness. Holiness is, is based on Christ in us. It's his holiness given to us. And then we just live that out. But it's not about do and don't. Don't taste, don't touch, all these things. Actually, the book of Colossians deals with that. The book of Colossians, which we're probably going to in the fall, says you think you don't taste, don't touch. You think that that has some value for the, for the flesh and for fighting the flesh. He said there's no value there. That's man-made wisdom. And so what we need to see is, no, God has called us, right, to something great. And, and, and your uh, calling is a positive thing. And if you, if you see it as negative, it's going to be pride. There's going to be sitting there longing. And there's going to be isolation. We'll turn ourselves into a church that just hides from the world. And we'll find the group of people that does everything, has the same convictions, looks like me, believes like me. And we'll hide in our little room, have a little small group, and talk about how bad the world is and how bad everything else is. And instead of being an influencer of culture, we'll be isolated from culture. We'll be insulated. And that has never been the intention of Jesus and his church. Never. Go hide out. Talk about how bad the world is, right? So it is a positive thing. Here's what Peter says about our calling, that we are a chosen race, that God chose you, that you are a royal priesthood, that you got royal blood running through your veins, right? You are a son and daughter of God. You are a, you are a priest, which means you have access to God. You're a holy nation. You're set apart. You are a people for his own possession. You belong to him. And the point is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out. You were called out of darkness into marvelous light. What the, how does that in any way a negative thing? I gotta be separate, right? It's, just, it's not. But it's the same lie that Satan's been selling since Genesis 3. God's not for you. If he was for you, he would have let you eat that tree. That one tree, right? He, God's not for your joy, he wants to steal your joy. The psalmist says, no, no, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. God doesn't want you, he's not want you to live. He wants you to make your life miserable. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundant. And it's just a lie that you gotta keep fighting. That we are called to something. 
And it's called to him. God is not calling us to a joyless, just no life, ascetic lifestyle where we just kind of sit around and talk about how bad everything is, right? The great, this is why the greatest command, what did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? All right, he didn't say the greatest commandment is keep the big, the big 10. He says, love God with your whole heart, right? Love me. Because if you love him, then you're not going to commit adultery. If you love him, you're going to honor your father and mother. If you love him, you're not going to steal from your brother or covet his, his car. So it's, lo- it's to love him, right? This life-giving, vibrant relationship with the living God where you enjoy him, you enjoy his gifts. And even if the things of earth fade away or pass away and that you still have him and you're able to see the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because I still have my treasure. I have my God. See, Samson missed it. It was about the rules. It was about what he couldn't do. And he ends up angry and bitter and never meeting his potential. And I don't want us to be us. It's not about the rules. Right? I want it to be about a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. We draw near to him and he draws near to us. That's the first thing he missed. And I think we missed. Here's the second thing. Is that... He didn't get that his being set apart was his strength. I mean, he got it on the external. He admits it to Delilah finally. Yeah, you cut my hair, I'm out. Uh, we, you know, it's interesting. We always think that Samson looked like the Hulk, right? And that, kind of your image of Samson is big. He walks around like this. But it never actually says he was big. It's not like he was in a gym powerlifting all week long. It says that his strength came when the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. His strength came from God, and and his strength came from the fact that he was distinct, that he was set apart. When does Samson lose his strength? When he loses his distinctness, the last thing he has is hair. And then he becomes weak when he is no longer distinct. And then what happens when his hair starts to grow? Which some of you guys are never going to have, I'm sorry. But when his hair starts to grow, he becomes strong again. He's got his distinctness back. He, He is... Weak when he is not distinct. The nation of Israel has assimilated into Philistines. They are weak. Samson has followed them. Our strength is in our distinctness, right? And we need to grasp that. Now, Jesus hasn't called us to be isolated from the world, but he has not called us to be like the world either. We are to be distinct. I didn't say weird. I didn't say obnoxious. I didn't say you're arguing with some dude about how many animals were on the ark. But we are supposed to be distinct. And it feels weird to be distinct. And I know when you're a teenager especially, you don't want to be different. It's hard to be distinct. But you've got to understand your distinction when you are set apart by God is, is your strength. Right? God has a, we all say God has a plan for your life. Yes, he does. But God also has a plan through your life that he wants to use you to be a blessing to other people, that God will use you as a channel for his blessing. And that comes when there is a distinctness to us, a set-apartness. That's all holy is, set-apart, right? That's where our strength is, right? So that you can be a blessing to others. So you're distinct in the way you show up to work tomorrow. Where everyone else is hung over and doesn't want to be there, you're, you're smiling. You got your coffee in hand. Let's go. And you do an excellent job. When the boss asks you to do something, you're reliable and you get it done. And you don't make excuses. And you don't take hour and a half lunches when you're only supposed to take an hour. And you're not stealing pencils from the, from the closet. That you're, you're the distinctness in which you work and show up tomorrow. 
You're not complaining all the time. You're not slamming the boss. There's a distinctness when someone treats you harshly and they will that you don't respond with harshness like everybody else. You actually respond with gentleness because blessed are the gentle, the meek. They're inherent the kingdom of God. Right? When you mess up, and you will, when you sin, when you hurt someone, you don't try to cover it up. You don't try to, to hide it. You actually admit it and ask for forgiveness. That's distinctness, right? When there's conflict, you don't choose a side and get in the mix and stir it up. That blessed are the peacemakers. They shall become sons and daughters of God. So you are actually a peacemaker at the office, in your house, with your kids, with the in-laws, whatever it is. That's a distinctness. That brings blessing, that stands out, that is strength. When you're a teenager and your parents say, I want you home by midnight, and at 11.46, your buddy's like, hey, just call your parents and say we're gonna be here, but we'll really go over there and you'll be 30 minutes late and they won't even know. And, and you, they, you as a teenager say, no, I'm gonna honor my father and my mother and I'm gonna go home now and not lie. That is distinct in a culture of liars, Right? It is. When you're alone and you're watching TV or you're on the internet, you get that little text and you know that it's inappropriate, you know you shouldn't be watching it, you actually turn it off and you leave or you go somewhere else. That's distinctness. No one else may see it but God. That you, you, that you choose not to fill your mind with filth so that it's just constantly permeating there. It's, it's, a, it's a distinctness. It's a set-apartness. Right? How you show hospitality the love of strangers that you give without get expecting in return. That even though that guy's annoying, you're gonna, you're gonna do that because because you are a, a child of God. You're gonna help that stranger change their tire. You're gonna hold that, that door open for that elderly person or go take their shopping cart back when they don't. It's a distinctness showing love to strangers. You're gonna let that person in on Waters Ave when they're coming out of this way, go, trying to go left. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> At four o'clock, right? Even though you have the right of way. When someone criticizes you and you have the opportunity to get back at them and do the same thing instead of criticize, you actually encourage. That's distinct. That's different. Where you're on the business trip and the guys and gals are going out and you know it's not gonna end well and it's not gonna be good, you say, I'm gonna go home and call my spouse. I'm gonna go talk to my kids before they go to bed. It's a distinctness. Right? When someone at the office is hurting, they're going through a tough divorce, they're struggling with this, they got someone in their family with cancer, that you stop, that you pray, that you love on them. That's distinctness. When you're a high school student and you see that guy over there, it's kind of awkward and he never has anyone to eat with, that you're the captain of the football team and you're Mr. Cool, but you're gonna bring that dude over to your table and you're gonna hang him, have him hang out with you because you know that God loves the unlovely and so you bring him in, that's distinctness. Right? There's all sorts of opportunities. When you're the big man, you're the doctor, you're the CEO, you're the boss lady, you're the this, and then you can show up and you can serve those people which are technically under your, uh, under your status in your mind or in the world's mind, but you can go serve in a way that, that serves people that, that are needy, whether it's children in the nursery or, or kids in the neighborhood or, or someplace down there for Habitat for Humanity, whatever it is, when you can go serve and give it yourself, that is distinctness. When things are going sideways and everything's a train wreck and you're still able to show up and sing your heart out, that's distinctness, right? And God has called us to be distinct because when we are distinct, we are strong. It's, that's what shines. Jesus was the light of the world. We talked about that last week. And then what does he say to us? You are the light of the world. 
You and you alone, literally, is how the Greek text works. You alone are the light of the world. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. That's what God has called us to. And Jesus is the perfect model of this, right? He's the perfect model of that one that was set apart, but he, was, he saw it as positive. Father, I, I, anything you call me to do, I'm gonna do. Your will, not my will. I have glorified you when I was here on earth. He was separated too. He was with, in the mix, in the mix of people, but he was not like them. He never compromised himself. He never compromised truth. The woman at the well married so many times, he doesn't say, yeah, it's okay for you to go shack up with her. No big deal. The woman caught in adultery, says, go and sin no more. Zacchaeus, it's okay for you to steal from people. No, no. He loved being with sinners, but he never kind of endorsed them. And the amazing thing about, as you read the Gospels, is sinners love Jesus. They were comfy around him. They weren't comfy sitting around him, but they were comfy around him. That's, I think that's a great vision for our church. Distinct, mixing it up with sinners. But sinners, it's like me. When every time I'll be playing something, playing ball, play, hanging out with people, you know, everyone's, you know, everyone just cusses up the storm, whatever. As soon as they find out you're a pastor, all of a sudden, man, they are Billy Graham's cousin. <laughs> the cuss words stop. Man, my brother was a pastor. I mean, it comes out. And, and there's a, there's a, that's the way it was probably with Jesus. Like, okay, I'm not gonna steal from people anymore. But there was a change in their life. He brought them up to his deal. That, that people feel comfortable around us, but there's still a distinction. There's a set-apartness, right? And there's an influence and an impact. That's what we want. And this is what Jesus prays. We'll close with this. This is what Jesus prays for us uh, the night before he uh, was, was crucified. He, sa- he says to God the Father, I do not ask. Now remember, this is Jesus, second person of the Trinity, the same person who's talking to Manoah and talking to his wife a thousand years earlier just hasn't taken on humanity. He is the second person of the triune God, permanent, eternal, but yet he hasn't taken on humanity. But here he is now praying for us. He says, I I don't ask you that you take them out of the world, talking to the disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. And then he says, sanctify them, that's set apart. Set them apart, set us apart. How? In truth, your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He's sending us, y'all. And for their sake, I I set myself apart. I consecrate myself. Same word there. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, these 11 dudes right here, but also for those who will believe in me through the word. That's y'all. What is Jesus saying? I'm setting them apart and I am sending them into the world. Guard them, protect them. Don't make them like the world, but let them reach the world. That's why I'm sending them out. Y'all, that's what we are. That's who we are. And we're strong when we're distinct. Not weird, not obnoxious, but distinct. And we see ourselves as this holy calling, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to declare what? The excellencies of him who took you out of darkness and put you in marvelous light. That is our job. That's what we mean when we say go be the church. That you are engaged with the culture for the sake of the gospel. And look, if you struggle with that, I just wanna double down. I wanna invite you to the training this afternoon. I know it's Sunday afternoon. Let me tell you this. There's no football, the draft is over. There's no big golf tournament. None of the big bigs are playing. And NASCAR is dumb anyway, all right? (laughs) So you got no reason Clint and Tom are gonna, it's not some big deep theological deal. It's it's a, it's a, a training to help you engage your neighbors, the people around you for the sake of the gospel. What does it look like? I mean, you ought to come out. Register, please, because we have childcare. But at four o'clock, it's not long. You'll be gone by six, maybe earlier. And, and just get around some people. If, I mean, if Jesus can change the world with 12 dudes who were engaged, what if we get 120, 
from this church and others that are engaged with the culture for the sake of the gospel. What could God do? So I want to invite you out this afternoon. I've gone over. Let me pray and let's sing and worship. Why don't you guys stand? Father, I pray as uh, we're about to leave or go serve in another capacity, Lord, that we would be your church, that we would be distinct, that we would be set apart. That comes from you. That is a calling from you. It is your son's righteousness in us and it's his spirit. And so I ask that you would, you would use us, you would set us apart, that you would make us like him. We're not perfect, uh, clearly, but uh, you have called us to yourself and that is a good thing. And if we've been legalistic about it or seeing it as rules, uh, let us see the beauty of your calling and how you have called us to yourself. Uh, and use us again for your name's sake. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.